All right, we're back. Uh, political theory and um, other stuff. Today we're in the Marx Corner doing um, part six of the introduction called Marx's Key Discovery, His Theory of Surplus Value, page 46. Um, Paul and I were just talking about looking at this intro and we're looking at the thickness of volume one and we're looking and then we're thinking about how there are multiple volumes after volume one and we're like man does this introduction make sense to do and for right now we're gonna keep steaming ahead with it but you know in the future we might jump around a little bit in the introduction we don't think we're gonna jump around that much in the the body of the work itself but who knows? We want to do as much of this as we can. I think it's helpful for us. And, you know, some people, some people, they're, they're comfortable just doing um, like an overview of the chapters. But for me, I feel like I understand this shit so little that I feel uncomfortable saying this is what the book is saying. Right. I would much rather read what the book says and then say, this is what I think it's saying so that people can be like, that's not I just heard what the book says and you're wrong rather than, you know, because there's a level of trust there yeah. that happens when you're summarizing something for people, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't feel comfortable doing that with the text that that we're covering, at least right now, you know. Right. So. right. No, I I completely agree, especially um, just I feel like that's uh, the gap that we're trying to fill, I suppose. Yeah. Just the difference between straight narration um, an overview just uh, yep you know obviously those are really awesome things to do but with certain fields and valuable and valuable yes um but yeah I, I just think it is important with uh especially right now uh and maybe i'm misreading it but i feel like there is a lot of confusion uh, in political discourse about what they're actually talking about if you will uh, and uh, not maybe uh some of it i i don't want to sound too shitty but <coughs> i assume some of it is um <coughs> excuse me <coughs> purposeful um and being able yep. to present this in a way that doesn't leave wiggle room i think is uh probably our our best option yeah and i should say um that when we say people need to remember that our show is very uh um american centric yes okay, so yes. when we when we say that there's confusion around the discourse with marx we're talking about from uh the u.s maybe uh canada a little bit but primarily the u.s so if you're listening from uh western europe and you're like what are you talking about you know we you know we, i read capital in fifth grade where are you talking about? it's like that's Indian. fine but for us you know, there there seems to be a lot of confusion. Yes. You know. Yes. And uh, so. bad faith confusion. Well. Yeah. Well, and, and also, like, let's be real, dude. The book is 900 <laughs> yeah. pages. Like, how many people, like, the only books that I feel like at least our demographic consistently read that are 900 pages are, like, Lord of the Rings Robert and fucking, um, I don't know who that is. The Wheel of Time or whatever. 
Okay, yeah, and then also um the the fucking uh, Lord or the um Game of Thrones. Yeah, you know, like those are the only books people are reading that are this fat, and so people picking up a nine hundred page book on political economy just doesn't often happen. And so. one that remains incre- like exceedingly dry until say page three hundred. <laughs> like, right, the first eight chapters uh, aren't thrilling reading per se important though yeah but yep. and yep. thrilling depending on how you think about it but if you're going in for entertainment purposes <laughs> i still i still can't believe chris just with his genuine smile being like no dude it's like a fun read right. enjoy it <laughs> it's like god dude that is so cool that that for you this is like a fun read right you now all right god think damn. about the terror of his boring reads Oh, Jesus Christ, dude. <laughs> Jesus Christ, yeah. Like, yeah. Chris has read enough uh, that Marx is exciting. Just, yeah. just think yeah. about that. It would be fun to have an episode where we have him come on to read just some short excerpts of something that he finds boring, boring or dry, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, my God. Um. So, yeah, do you want to start with uh, the, the intro on uh, uh, six? Yeah. Um, so once again, Marx's key discovery, his theory of surplus value, um, or, well, I won't explain anything because I'm probably wrong. Uh, the classical school of political economy, including Ricardo, saw profits as a residual net income once wages had been paid. I'm going to read that again. The classical school of political economy, including Ricardo, saw profits, profits as a residual net income once wages had been paid. Indeed, so strict was their adherence to this concept that Ricardo believed that only increases or decreases in production costs in the wage, excuse me, good industries could influence the rate of profit. Whatever happened to the luxury goods industry or even to raw materials would not affect the global rate of profit. This view is incomplete and therefore incorrect, but it was at least an attempt to come to grips with the problem of income distribution between social classes as a function of what happens in the course of production. The exponents of post-Ricardian vulgar economic theory, and especially the neoclassical marginalists, do not bother to ask the question, why? They are content just to answer the question, how? They simply note that factors, not labor, capital, land, <clears throat> get different prices on the markets and limit themselves to a study of how those prices fluctuate. To consider the origins of profit, interest, and rent, to ask whether workers must abandon part of the product of their labor when they work for an alien entrepreneur, to examine the mechanisms through which this appropriation occurs as a result of an honest-to-God act of exchange without any cheating or plotting, it was left to Marx to unravel these basic questions about the capitalist mode of production. So basically, where the fuck does profit come from? The origin of the income and consumption of the ruling classes in pre-capitalist societies is no matter of speculation. Anybody knows that, from an economic point of view, they were the results of appropriation of part of the fruits of the producer's labor by the ruling class. Oh, maybe that's where it comes from. Uh, When the medieval serf worked half the week for his own livelihood on the land of his manse... Let's look that one up. It's, uh... for some reason, that reminds me of the word merce. I don't know that word either. Like man purse. Just his manse. It is manse. Um, <clears throat> the house occupied by a minister of a Presbyterian church. What? Maybe I lost something. Well, the medieval cert. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, uh, you know, the church had serfs. 
like the Catholic Church did for sure, I'm sure. Huh. Well, it, maybe it applies to like more than that. Maybe it's just like the home of a important person and other. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, okay. anyway, let's just assume home of an important person. Uh, okay. When the medieval serf worked half the week for his own livelihood on the land of his manse. God damn it. That's so weird. And the other half of the week without re- uh, remuneration on the estate of the noble or the church. One could argue that from a moral point of view, he was offering unpaid labor in exchange for the service of provi- profane or divine protection. But nobody would confuse this exchange with what goes on in the marketplace. It was, in fact, no economic exchange at all, in any sense of the word, no give and take of anything which can be priced, in even the most indirect way. The service of protection is not bought by the serf any more than a small Chicago businessman buys a service from a gang of hoodlums. It is an extortion imposed upon him by the social setup, whether he likes it or not. The origin of the social surplus product accruing to the pre-capitalist ruling class is, therefore, obviously unpaid labor, whether in the form of labor services or of physical products of these labels of of these labor services, or even of money rent expended by the producers. Uh, in the case of slavery, the context is as clear, if not clearer, especially in those extreme examples where even the miserable pittance of the slave was not provided by the masters, but had to be provided by the slave himself on the seventh day of the week. Indeed, regarding these slave plantations, even the most skeptical critics of the historical materialism will find it hard to doubt that the whole social product, the part which fed the slaves as well as the part which fed the masters, had but one origin, social labor expended by the slaves and by them alone. Which, uh, it's super important, um, I think, to think, and I, I know this is covered more, but on a large scale, capitalism couldn't have ever even gotten started without slavery theoretically i mean it was the it was required to build the capital that has pushed it this far it's fucking disgusting and we also um in the the that uh, rev left episode i sent you they talk about primitive accumulation yeah. right and the closing of the commons right. you know yeah, and how go get a tree can't go right, down yeah, a tree without can't... breaking the law can't yeah, right yeah you can't farm in the the communal space anymore like all that stuff there was like a a twitter trend going around like what radicalized me or whatever okay and like 50 percent of the ones i saw were um people having their community gardens destroyed oh wow Mm -hmm. why destroyed well Uh, against like city ordinance uh, against shit like that but yeah i mean like we have reached a point where we're not allowed to grow food on public property because it breaks the law that's fucking insane well it's not like when you use the phrase we have reached the point it makes it sound like it happened recently right yeah that's it's true. like yeah. that's been yeah. that's been a thing for a while yep. you know yep and people are just like yeah that makes sense that makes yeah total sense it's like uh we literally couldn't have created capitalism without primitive accumulation right. from my understanding yeah you know? that's my so. understanding as well uh for whatever that is worth uh <laughs> When however, when, however, we look at the capitalist mode of production, everything seems much more complicated and much more obscure, to say the least. No brutal force personified by an overseer with a whip or some group of armed men, I mean, just the threat of starving to death, but um, appears to have forced the worker to give up anything he has produced or owns himself. His relationship with the capitalist, and this brings up what I think they were talking about in that podcast, right? Rights aren't the end-all be-all. 
Like, mm-hmm. if all mm-hmm. you have is the right to go to work to, or not to go to work or starve, yep. Well, yep. tight rights. Um, yep. Which is which is that whole thing, in my opinion, that's the difference between uh, materialism versus idealism, right? The, yeah. um, the idealism looks at it from the abstract point of view, like the, the metaphysical point of view, like taking this situation or this one item in a situation and putting it in a vacuum and saying, oh, this is an uncoerced exchange, right? Like, whereas um, uh, a materialist looks at the whole context realizes everything's intertwined and says, well, no, because if you don't agree to take this job, you will starve or you right. will be homeless. And depending so. on the time in American history, you'll also be in fucking jail. Right. Yeah. So yep. uh, I totally. wish is right now for certain cities. I know you can be arrested for being homeless uh, in a lot right. of rural, rural areas. So yeah, not a lot of choice. Uh, his relationship with the capitalist appears to be based upon an act of exchange, which is identical to that of a small artisan or a farmer. Uh, owners of commodities they themselves have produced who meet in the marketplace. The worker appears to sell his labor in exchange for a wage. The capitalist combines that labor with machines, raw material, and the labor of other men to produce finished products. As the capitalist owns these machines and raw material materials as well as the money to pay the wages it is not natural that he should also own the finished products which result from the combination of these factors this is what appears to occur under capitalism however probing below the surface marx comes up with a series of striking observations which can only be denied if one deliberately refuses to examine the unique social conditions which create the very peculiar and exceptional exchange between labor and capital in the first place, there is an institutional inequality of conditions between capitalists and workers. The capitalist is not forced to buy labor power on a continuous basis. He does it only if it is profitable to him. If not, he prefers to wait, to lay off workers, or even to close his plant down till better times. The worker, on the other hand, uh, in parentheses, the word is used here in the social meaning, made clear precisely by the sentence, and not necessarily in the stricter sense of manual labor. Um, so the worker, on the other hand, is under economic compulsion to sell his labor power, is under economic compulsion uh, to sell his labor power, as he has no access to the means of production, including land, as he has no access to any large-scale free stock of food, and he has no reserves of money which enable him to survive for any length of time while doing nothing. He must sell his labor power to the capitalists on a continuous basis and at the current rate. Without such institutionalized compulsion, a fully developed capitalist society would be impossible. Indeed, once such compulsion is absent, for example, where large tracts of free land subsist, capitalism will remain dwarfed until, by hook or by crook, nice, the bourgeois class suppresses <laughs> access to that free line. The last chapter of Capital Volume 1 on colonization develops this point to great effect. The history of Africa, especially of South Africa, but also of the Portuguese, Belgian, French, and British colonies, strikingly confirms this analysis. If people are living under conditions where there is no economic compulsion to sell their labor power, then repressive, juridical, and political compulsion has to deliver the necessary manpower to the entrepreneurs. Otherwise, capitalism could not survive under these circumstances. Which is what we were just talking about. It doesn't, it isn't just like people got together and they said, oh, this is how we want to run our society. 
um, and we all agree or the majority of us agree this is what we're doing, right? right. It was those that, um, you know, had the means to create primitive accumulation did that and then used the systems to force people into being laborers rather than um, than serfs or right. peasants, right? Yep. Um, and 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 um, just to remind everyone, we're not saying that um, capitalism shouldn't have happened. We're not saying – there's no moral um, judgment here. We're just analyzing – or the book is analyzing and then we're talking about um, how um, capitalism came to um, exist. Yep. Um, all right. So I'll, I'll take it for a little bit. All right. The function of trade unions – be it said in passing, is immediately clarified in the light of this analysis. Workers who combine to set up a reverse fund reserve, can sorry. be, oh, a reserve fund fund can be freed, at least for some weeks, from the compulsion to sell their labor power on a uh, on a continuous basis at the given market I'm rate. So sorry to interrupt. Think about how fucked up it is that people don't make enough money to save for vacation they literally have to wait until the pittance where their work pays them to take vacation like i wonder how few people could afford to take vacations if they didn't have paid time off that's kind of a, right. a, a shitty thing that i've never really thought about right my situation you know i've never had a job that paid me to uh time off you know yeah. and so you know all it's very easy for me to go a year without going on a vacation and um the times i do go on vacation it's like i combine the days that they already give me off so let's yep. say like two days plus another two or three days because um if i save for um a couple months prior i can usually handle that but even still on uh, my most recent vacations last couple of years it ends up being that either my dad my brother or whoever i'm visiting is the one that pays my plane ticket. So I don't have the money to buy a plane ticket, but I can, given a month or two of savings, can avoid taking, or I can, yeah, can avoid taking a couple days, or not working a couple of right, days. Right, just bill-wise. Right, right, exactly. But not, but that's it, you right. know? Yeah, you didn't, you don't have enough money to go, like, hit up Atlantic City and fucking right. Uh, right. do some shopping on your vacation or whatever. Yeah, it's like I have enough money to have someone else buy my plane ticket and then be like, uh, while I'm there, be like, hey, Mike, we're going out to eat at this place tonight, but don't worry, I'll pay for it. Yeah. I know you don't have the money for it. That's like, so So that's how that's how people like myself are able to vacation. So if I didn't have that network, what, what type of vacations am I taking? I'm taking none, right? right. Like, yep. Like Sarah and I are going on vacation tomorrow night for one night. And it was so financially strenuous that I've told her multiple times, like, we don't have to do this if you don't, if you can't do it. And I've told her, you know, I'll pay for everything once we're there. If you need help when we get back, let me know. And I'm there financially. Yep. That's how um, hard it is for, for working class people. And we're talking about to... two full grown Americans who have worked their entire lives. Yeah, uh, the yep. only reason that we don't currently work is a fucking pandemic, you know, that we're just gullible enough to believe in. Um, right. So, uh, yeah, it's and I'll, and life, I'll admit tight life. I'll admit that I'm um, because of um, a variety of factors. Uh, I don't normally I'm not normally able to physically work over 35 hours, but there have been plenty of months where Sarah's worked more than 55, 60 hours a week. 
and um, still, you know, her vacations are very and limited. I could be totally off base, but I would also assume that you and Sarah are actually in a better financial position than most Americans due to the fact that, to the best of my knowledge, neither of you are under a mountain of debt. So Sarah does have uh, that um, that uh, healthcare debt from oh, um, her right. times in inpatient. I think it's like seven grand, um, and I do have um, I think like six grand of student uh, debt. But, but comparison, I think, I think right. let me look up. Uh, I can't remember the exact Sean, but I with my car loan and my credit card balance currently have like forty two hundred dollars in debt total, and um, uh, when I did my taxes. Uh, turbo or whatever gives you that credit report and it like breaks down a st- like where you fall statistically the average debt that TurboTax told me for my age range was $175,000 and that just what? yeah well if you think about like a house or oh okay um, yeah. something of that nature how many of these houses are going to turn a profit when climate change makes your area to live untenable like mm-hmm. there's so much so much shit, and especially like we also grew up in a time where the housing market isn't a guarantee. Like right. there is no guarantee that you're accruing value within your house anymore. Um, so yeah, it's just it's terrifying. Like I um, sometimes I'll get bummed that I'm broke, but then I'll put it in the perspective of like, ah, but I'm only broke. I'm not fucking in debt to uh, like I'm not in debt to the point where stuff I own could start being taken away um because and that's that's like a fucking relief to me at the end of the day <clears throat> which is sad like well, that's and, my relief that i'm not in debt to the point where i'm afraid of losing all of my shit like that is my well, relief and the other thing that that provides me with some relief is i realized that the majority of of our generation is in that same boat yes. you know yep. and i was talking to jason when the pandemic first started and he was concerned about not being able to pay his mortgage and i was like dude 9 out of 10 people on your block wouldn't be able to pay their mortgage are the banks are the banks going to foreclose on everyone? Like, you know, you get what I'm saying? That that if I was in like the um, you know, the 10% that just didn't have their shit together, then I would be uh, a lot more stressed, but I know that the majority of us are in the same boat. Well, I think know. it's going to depend area to area. Like any area where a bank has a confident buyer, mm-hmm. they're not going to yes. give a fuck. They'll foreclose right. on That's all these true. fuckers. That's um, true. It's That's true. uh yeah, as long as they're making money, they won't give a shit about the social consequence, which, yep. yeah, is obvious. Sorry. Um, Sorry. So, so where am I? Uh, that um, is why. Oh, oh, I see where where it's at. Okay. But yeah, I'll do cap- capitalism. Capitalism does not like that at all. It is not contrary to nature, if not to human nature, then at least to the deeper nature of bourgeois society. That is why under robust... Uh, nascent capitalism, trade unions were simply banned. That is also why, under uh, senile capitalism, we are gradually returning to a situation in which workers are denied the right to strike, the right to abstain from selling their labor power at the offered price whenever they like. In this instance, Marx's insight is clearly confirmed by the highest authorities of the bourgeois state. Under capitalism, labor is fundamentally forced. Oh, uh, oh is fundamentally forced labor. Um, give me one second to do my little highlighting situation. Fundamentally forced labor. Um, whenever possible, capitalism 
capitalists prefer uh, hypocritically or hypocritically? Is it hypocritically? Okay. Prefer hypocritically to cloak the compulsion under a smokescreen of equal and just exchange on the labor market. When when hypocrisy is no longer possible, they return to what they begin with, which, uh, sorry, Uh, when hypocrisy is no longer possible, they return to what they begin with, naked coercion. And um, that's so what we were talking about earlier, and that's so important. Okay. Um, Marx, of course, was perfectly well aware of what the function of of that function or of the fact that of the fact that in order to organize production in modern factories, it was not enough to combine the social labor power of manual and uh, and intellectual workers. It was necessary to provide for land, buildings, energy, infrastructural elements like roads and water, machinery, a a given fabric of organized society, means of communication, etc. But is it? But it is obviously absurd to presume that because factory production is impossible without these conditions of production, roads and canals, therefore, uh, in quotes, produce value. It is no. It is no more logical to assume that machines in quotes, produce any value in and by themselves. Of all these factors, uh, it can be said only that their given value has to be maintained and reproduced through incorporation of part of it in the current output of living labor during the production, during the production process. We come, uh, we come nearer to the truth when we note that property titles private appropriation rights uh, to land and machinery lead to a situation where these factors will not be incorporated into the process of production with, uh, without their proprietors receiving an expected, quote, return over and above the compensation for the, for the wear and tear of the in quotes factors this is obviously true um but oh notice how um after factors in quotes there's no period but yet the this is capitalized, capitalized. why is that or is uh, that just I a mistake but it's yeah okay possibly all right. a uh, typo all right well Dude, we should start marking these and charging these publishers for our fines like right. uh we've got what two or three in capitalist realism right i know which, uh, I mean, we got them. It's clear yeah. that this book is not correct. Right. Because there's a typo there. Uh, and how am I supposed to have confidence in Marx? Right. I know. Facts don't care about your feelings. Libertards the fact owned. is... Libertards owned. They uh, capitalized in the wrong place. Yeah. Um, all right. But it does <laughs> not ironic, follow... <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, capital in the wrong it... place. Okay, right, capital in the wrong place. But it does not follow at all that such returns are then produced by the property titles, nor does it imply that owners of such property titles meet the owners of labor power on an equal footing. Only if we were in a capitalist slave society where owners of slaves hired out 
labor power to owners of factories renting land from landed proprietors, could one say that institutional equality exists between all owners? Wow, that's cool. I haven't thought about that before. So uh, all he's saying is like the, the only way that this could all be equal is if there were slaves and it was equal between all the owners. Okay, all the owners. Um, though, of course, not between owners and, and slaves right. with an exc- <laughs> exclamation point. Obviously, in that case, the, sla- the slave owners would ha- hire out their slaves only if they received a net return over and above the upkeep of the slaves. In the second place, the social institution in which a small part of society has monopolized property and access to the means of production to the exclusion of all or nearly all direct producers is in no way a product of, in quotes, uh, natural inequality of talents and inclinations among human beings. Indeed, it did not exist for tens of thousands of years of social life on the part of Homo sapiens. Even in the relatively recent past, say 150 years ago, uh, nine-tenths of the producers on this planet who were in their, o- in their overwhelmingly majority agricultural producers did have direct access in one way or another to the means of production and livelihood. The separation of the producer from his means of production was a long and bloody historical process, analyzed in detail by Marx in Part 8 of Capital One, so-called primitive accumulation. I'm so excited for that. And I'm pretty sure Marx rips, I think it's Ricardo, apart about this. But it's like that concept where... um, yeah, capitalism is just where you make your own stuff for your own subsistence, and whatever you have extra, uh, you get to sell on the market. It's perfect. Uh, and then it's just like the brought up um, point of uh, that's fucking stupid, dude. Like, if you uh, have chickens and make eggs, then that means that everything required from that comes solely from your chicken's eggs yeah not realistic dude none of this is realistic if you actually look at it um with any uh, sort of magnifying glass or whatever i or, think realistic is the wrong word yeah uh well, um, because it, it happens so it's realistic right but it's not realistic in the sense that or like um um the way that you're it's framing not realistic it realistic on a small scale it can okay. happen if you are able to have 10,000 chickens, right? Um, but your average person doesn't have 10,000 chickens and won't, if they are a chicken farmer um, <clears throat> in like a commodity, like money exchange sort of deal, or in just a commodity exchange without the money, there's, so, which is what they build capitalism on. Like they say, of. Back in the day, from what I understand, that capitalism could be explained with just a commodity exchange and an excess of commodities, basically. Um, And then uh, I'm pretty sure Marx's counterpoint is just like, well, yeah, dude, but you're only thinking about chickens and eggs. You're forgetting that you have to have money to buy a house and you have to have all of these things. So one, it predicates that all of those people with those things would be willing to change it for eggs. Uh, and that too, that you'd be able to produce enough eggs to meet all of your other needs. 
um, without access to free land, which is not at all realistic, if you will, uh, on a smaller scale. Obviously, once you get into a large scale, you can produce enough commodities if you are a machine owner or a landowner or things like that, a large scale machine or landowner. In the third place, the worker does not sell um, does not sell the capitalist his labor, but his labor power, his capacity to work for a given period of time. This labor power becomes a commodity under capitalism. As such, it has a specific value, exchange value, as any other commodity does. The quantity of, or the yeah, the quantity of social labor necessary to reproduce it to reproduce it that is to say the value of the consumer goods necessary to keep the worker and his children in condition to continue to work at a given level of intensity of effort but it has a special quality a special use value for the capitalist when the capitalist consumes labor power in the uh, process of production the worker produces value his labor his labor has the double capacity to conserve value yep that it that is to transfer into the finished uh, product the value of the raw material and of a fraction of the machinery used up in the process of production and to create new value by spending it uh, spending itself the whole mystery of the origin of profits and rents is over once one understands that in the process of production the workers can and must otherwise the capitalists would not hire them produce value over and above the value of their own labor power over and above the equivalent of the wages which they receive uh we are back where we started in pre-capitalist societies, and we have been able to eliminate the cobweb of apparent, quote, exchange equality, uh, like feudal rent or the slave owner's livelihood. Capitalist profits, interests, and rents originate from the difference between what the workers produce and what they receive of their upkeep for or their for upkeep. for yep. their upkeep under capitalism this difference appears in the form of value and not of physical output this fact prevents the process from being immediately transparent but it does not make it fundamentally different from the exchange taking place between feudal lord and serf and what's crazy is we've reached a point where employers don't even give a fuck about that upkeep cost anymore. Like we've reached a point in American society where good, a good percentage of our population believes that there are jobs that do not need to provide a livelihood, that there are jobs that are profitable or wouldn't exist. There are profit jobs for profitable companies that don't need to pay their workers enough money to even maintain their life. Um, and that's, God, it's so, and we just accept it as a society. Um, the amount of times I have read in online threads will just get a better job than McDonald's or whatever is so fucking disheartening. Like, are you fucking kidding? Then stop going to McDonald's. Stop doing all of these things. If you don't view these as important enough to exist in society, then okay, I could maybe agree with that. But if we're at the point where this job needs to exist, then the person working that job, at the very least, needs to be able to afford their life for capitalism to even fucking work. Like, 
It's... Well, or actually, it, it needs them to not be able to afford to live to be able to work. Right? Like, um, if they... Uh, it's kind if... of a two-edged... Or kind of two sides of the same coin, because if workers... I think I think Marx would call it a contradiction a in contra- capitalism. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Because if workers aren't alive, then they can't work. Uh, and eventually that will catch up to the capitalists. We're just in that phase where they're like, well, we can work out a lot of money until they actually reach the point where they uh, can... And we were talking earlier, and we were talking earlier about debt. And the reason why that works is because of like credit cards and debt, right? And now we're in the situation where it's so clear that the capital in our country literally views capital as more important than human lives. Uh, Like, just look at the coronavirus response. I mean, like time and time again, the counterpoint to being reasonable and safe around a pandemic is think about how much livelihood this could cost. And we're not talking about your standard hourly wage people. We're talking about when they say that, that's not who they're really referring to, I don't believe. It's, um... Well, and I don't even think they, I haven't heard it framed as livelihood. I've heard it framed as like, we need to open the economy, economy back right. up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's like, uh, even though I, I loathe um, the politics of South Park, it is like that South Park episode with the, the whole economy thing that they made back in 2008 yeah. or 2009, where Randy's going around just being like, you know, um, we need to, uh, you know, we need to do what's best for the economy. Like, we need to blah, blah, blah for the economy. Yeah. Um, South Park just uh, clarifies that it's super easy to be centrist if you're rich. Uh, right. Yep. 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 Well, and it's just so funny because it's like, you know, so many people have that, especially so many like middle class white dudes have that like libertarian bent when they're in middle school and high school. And because those dudes got so successful so early, they were able to um, to maintain that that mind frame rather than than seeing um, the seeing the reality of certain situations, yeah. you know. Yep. Um, okay. And obviously they're bent on probably they've been upset for a while about like government censorship, which I'm sure right. fuels their uh, distaste for the government. From time to time. Which is super limited too, right? Like, uh, anyhow, uh, where? Oh yeah, okay. It is. It is therefore incorrect to state as does what's that guy's name? Blog. Blog? I think that's the dragon from The Hobbit. Okay. Really? No. No. I just, oh, okay. That's I was what like, it wow, me why of. were you? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. It is therefore incorrect to state, as, as does Blog, following other academic critics of Marx, that Marx's theory of surplus value is a theory of unearned uh, in, increment. It is an appropriation or deduction theory of the capitalist income, as was the classical labor theory of value. Capitalists appropriate value which the workers have already produced prior to the process of circulation of commodities and of distribution of income. So, uh, no value can be distributed from a macroeconomic point of view. In other words, viewing bourgeois society as a whole, which has not been previously produced. Marx himself considered the discovery of the concept of surplus value representing the sum total of profits in interests and rents of all parts of the bourgeois class as his main theoretical discovery. Um, 
in in it ties together the historical science of society and the science of the capitalist economy, explaining both the origins and the content of the class struggle and the dynamic of capitalist society. Right, but the stock market goes burr. How do you explain that? Uh, I'm just <laughs> For once we understand that surplus value is produced by workers, that surplus value is nothing but the age-old social surplus product in money form, in the form of value, we understand the historical leap which occurred when that social surplus product no longer appeared essentially in the form of luxury goods, of which consumption is necessarily limited, even under conditions of such extreme extra extravagance as during the Roman Empire or in the 18th century French court, but in the form of money. More money means not only additional purchasing power for such luxury goods, but additional purchasing power for more machines, more raw materials, more labor power. Here, too, Marx discovered an economic compulsion. Private property, the fragmentation of social labor among various firms, that is, the very nature of generalized commodity production, capitalism, implies a compulsion to compete for shares of the market. The need to accumulate capital, the need to increase the extraction of surplus value, the unquenchable thirst for surplus value which characterizes capitalism, it is all here. The accumulation of capital equals the transformation of surplus value into additional capital. So, just one. That's super important. Yeah, gaining lots of money. I think. Doing no work. And it just, it shows the power of money. Well, and maybe even the power of capital. Power of, yeah, you know? of, of just, yeah, of, yeah, money being in that capital sense of somehow money gained more power than the commodities it was designed to exchange, if you will. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I will. But, um, and this ties into what I've talked about with, um, with the uh, environmental uh, crisis, right? If, if your economic system is, is one which you have to uh, consistently increase the amount of profit and the amount of um, uh, resource extraction, extraction yeah. then inevitably, you, um, if your resources are finite, which ours are, that has to stop at some point. Like yeah. that, and yet again, I feel like uh, that, uh, from my understanding, that would be another contradiction of, of right. capitalism. And this isn't a contradiction, but the other thing it does, that money does, uh, to take the Marx term, is the alienation of the consumer from everything else like you don't you can go buy stuff without being connected to the producer you mm -hmm. can you know sell stuff without ever meeting the buyer uh there's this huge disconnect that puts people in a weird sense of being alienated from everything around them except for money um which i also imagine probably isn't great for society yeah absolutely absolutely again has for value we should note that this is all what this is all about command over fractions of the total disposable quantity of social labor. It is sufficient to recall this basic fact to understand how misplaced are criticisms, criticisms of the theory of surplus value, which speak about the productivity of capital, capital being understood as machines. Machines can never, in and by themselves, hire any fraction of the disposable social labor force, except in science fiction. In the more prosaic and, and possibly reality in the near future, but uh, in the more prosaic world in which we live, men owning machines can, for that reason, hire and fire other men. How the product of the labor of these men is divided is then divided and why 
is what Marx seeks to explain. Of course, Marx did not deny that machinery could produce increase the social productivity of labor. On the contrary, if one reads chapter 15 of Capital Volume 1, that'll be us someday, one will see immediately that he was more aware of that potential of technology than any economist among his contemporaries. That's such an important part to me. Um, but be, just to view Marx correctly, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, but the question which most of his critics and other exponents of vulgar economics overlook is very simple. Namely, why should the results of the increased productivity of labor be appropriated by the capitalist? Basically, like, why do they have the right to take all of this extra money? Why should right. the combined productivity of many men working together... Or, 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 or not money, but value. Value, yes. Right? Yes, good yeah. call. Good call. Uh, surplus value. Why should the combined productivity of many men working together, the famous collective labor potential of the factory, to which a key analysis is devoted in the original Part 7, Chapter 6, omitted from the published version of Capital Volume 1? Uh, if you are reading along and would like to do this, that's just back in the <laughs> appendix, uh, pages 943 through 1084. Uh, <laughs> the combined productivity of scientists and technologists workers by hand and brain, inventors of machinery and flexors of muscles, increase the profit of the owners of machinery? Surely, not because that machinery has some mysterious quality of creating value, that is, of creating quantities of socially necessary labor. Surely, rather because the owners are in a position to appropriate the products of that combination. So we are back to Marx's theory of surplus value. Uh, it doesn't even seem like it was a strong enough argument to leave that theory, but here we are again. Uh, and I say that with 150 years of uh, following thought. <laughs> As interesting, if somewhat astounding uh, innovation in apologetics for capitalist profit, profits has recently occurred in the form of theory of the firm developed by Alchian, Alchian and Demsets, uh, who are which they wrote the production information costs and economic organization uh, in 1972 owners of different cooperating inputs are supposed to have a natural tendency to shirk because they give some preference to non pecuniary goods what's pecuniary i don't know or relating or consisting of relating to or consisting of money okay so uh uh, they give some preference to non-pecuniary goods, such as leisure, attractive working conditions, and time to converse with fellow workers. It follows, according to Alkian and Demsets, that if shrinking is to be checked, someone must have both the right to monitor the performance of teen members and the disinclination to shirk himself. To this end, he must have the right to receive the residue after all other inputs have been paid contractual amounts, the right to terminate membership of the team, and the right to sell these rights. After having received with great joy the good tidings that he has now been promoted to the status of member of a cooperative team on an equal footing with the capitalist, the average worker cannot fail to wonder for what mysterious reason the someone who gets all these economically necessary rights is always the owner of the input means of production, and never the owner of the input labor power. Would it be because the capitalist is free from the human vice of shirking or has no inclination to leisure or attractive working conditions? Or is it perhaps because Messer's apologists for capitalism are trying to argue away the fact of surplus value appropriation through monopoly ownership of the means of production? 
Yeah. On point. Yeah. On point. Dude, best. That hits hard. Best section of the intro so far, man. Yeah. Um, and I have a feeling that this is kind of how the book will go. Uh, yeah. It will be really, really hard to get through the first 300 pages. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's necessary to establish the backing for the juicy shit. Um, right. If you don't spend time with boring stuff, um, then everybody can just shit all over you. So. Well, and it, it reminds me of reading um, uh, Simone uh, de Beauvoir's um, The Second Sex. And in that, she spends a lot of time talking about, in the beginning, like insects and maybe even like, maybe not bacteria, but like insects and invertebrates and how they, uh, the demarcation between the sexes and how reproduction works and all that stuff. And then she goes through the history of um, the mystification of women and all that stuff is like really boring, but I, but you also know that if she hadn't have said, written down that stuff in uh, whatever the 40s or 50s and just done the what you term the juicy part, then it would have been so easy to pick apart. It's like, unfortunately or fortunately, they have to think about their detractors when they're writing. And so they have to have this like fucking rock solid foundation so that, um, so that you know so that their detractors are limited in what they can um well and i would say, say it's a huge issue with uh the debate culture we have online right now where people just want to skip to be in the juicy part without doing the background work to defend their juicy part right um right. which yeah it's frustrating it's frustrating to watch um and i think that's uh what we're trying to fucking do yeah is be yep. able to justify our juicy parts you know yeah yeah, um, totally, dude. Our, totally. our wet ass pussies, if you will. Yeah, yeah, just, uh... I, I definitely will, dude. I definitely will. You know, our our, our shit's dripping, and we gotta yeah. have reasons for it. Yep. Um. All right. So uh, next time we are doing part seven, Marx's theory of capital, on page fifty four, and we look forward to it. Yeah, and um, from uh, the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Um, yep. Never hesitate to reach out. We would love yep. to interact. Um, And most importantly, have a great day.